Um, the last time I spoke, we were looking at the fact that Jesus is the temple and that that created a huge um, problem for him within the, the Jewish community because the temple is brick and mortar and Jesus says that is going to be destroyed. And by the way, you're going to destroy this temple as well. But in three days, this temple is going to be raised up. So we were looking at what does it mean to be temple? And then, of course, Jesus turns and says that we are the temple and that we are filled with the Holy Spirit now. And so the power of God dwells in us, the temple of God. And that the point of those two things is that in Hebrew thinking, you have... Do we get lost with the offering? Oh, oh, they're saying, oh, okay. Yeah. Hey, I went to a church once, and the offering was taken, and they counted it up front, and there wasn't enough. And they said, we're going to do another offering, because we're still, I don't know how many, but hundreds of dollars short of the offering they wanted. And they pass that plate again, which we all get the hint. If we want to go home today, somebody needs to cough up with some cash because they ain't let us out of here until it gets paid for. So that was one offering experience. My second offering experience, I was a brand new Christian invited to this church in uh, Chester, PA, outside of Philadelphia. And um, it was a, well, let's, it, it, let's just say it was a church that was primarily a, a black church. And I was invited by a good friend of mine, and I was the only white guy in the church. And when you, the, the two deacons stood up front and with the offering plate, and then everybody walked up and put in the offering. And each deacon, as you put in your offering, would call out, $5, $50. And I had no money, I'm like, they're going to go, that cheap white guy ain't even going to put no money in the offering. And Paul, the friend that invited me, he says, man, you got any offering? Because you, you have to go up. You can't just sit and see him. Paul, I don't, man. I, like, we put gas in the car to get here. I don't, I don't have any money. He goes, here, here's a dollar. I'm like, oh, that's great. That's great. You know, I just knew that Deacon was going, the cheap white guy just put a dollar in the plate. But he didn't. He just called out a dollar, and I hurried up and sat down like, oh, that's the most uncomfortable thing I've ever gone through in my life. <laughs> but at least they didn't take a second offering. I was very thankful. No second offering. I mean, we're just doing it once. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know why I had to tell those stories, but <laughs> my life growing up in the kingdom. So we were talking about temple and how the temple uh, in Jewish thinking, first century, that the temple was that interface between heaven and earth. Um, when Jesus said, you know, that there's a new heaven and a new earth that's going to be created. I know there's, a, there's various views of what that means. I personally don't hold that that means that God's going to annihilate the universe and create a new universe. The new heaven and the new earth are you. 
you are ultimately the place where the completed interface between the seen and the unseen, between heaven and earth, meet. You are the new Jerusalem. You are that new heaven, that new earth, that new interface between God and his creation. Um, we can all talk about that on another day. I'm just giving you that's where I am with that. So Jesus now, I, I'm, you know, we've already gone through Easter season, so I'm running behind the curve here. I'm weeks behind where probably the sermon should be. I've never been good at seasons anyway, so just put up with it. The, uh, uh, so Jesus now, he's the temple, he's coming in. We talked about the conflict between the Romans, between the, the, um, the Jewish leaders, all that was happening. And when you begin to see that Jesus throughout the gospels, the gospel writers, one, the gospel writers are not writing doctrine. They're telling a story. Out of the story, we derive doctrine but the goal of, the, of the, uh, the, the gospel writers was not to give us a statement of faith. It was to tell us about Jesus and who he was, why he was, what he did, what he, what he was thinking, what Yahweh, Father God, was thinking. The goal was for them to say, we have been with this man, as John said, that which we've seen, that which we've heard, that which we've touched is now that which we give to you. And uh, it's, um, you know, people will, especially in today's culture, it's real popular to, to nitpick at Christianity or go after it and say it, you know, it doesn't, it isn't this, it isn't that, it isn't the other. There's a couple things. One, if you told 12 people, you're going to have to tell the same story when you're separated for each other the rest of your lives and keep the story the same. Then 12 people that could tell you the same story. There isn't even 12 people, a jury, who, he who can hear the same thing and, and, and arrive at the same conclusion, which is why juries deliberate. Yeah. So it's miraculous, number one, that 12 people could actually continually discuss the biblical story, who Jesus is, what he did, what he accomplished, and tell the same story over and over and over again. That's, a, that's amazing in itself. So Jesus now, we're, we're, he's coming into Jerusalem. We're at the, we're, we kind of left off at this place of what's referred to as the triumphal entry. But ultimately, what this was, it was the, the, the confrontation, the, this is the culmination, if we want to look at it this way, it was the culmination of the ages now happening as Jesus comes into to Jerusalem. Now, as we looked at in previously, for the first century Jew, my, my thinking centered around the Exodus story. It's no mistake that Jesus uses Passover to show up at Jerusalem. He could have come on tabernacles, he could have come on another feast, but he came on Passover, and that wasn't lost on them. And he said he was the sacrificial lamb. He put himself into Passover, he put himself into the story, and then he said, and the way you define the story, 
which as we looked at before, but for review, as a first century Jew, the way I would have looked at Exodus was in the Exodus story, there was the oppressive person, the king, the, the, whoever the oppressor is, there's the oppressor, there's the oppressed, there's the period of oppression, whatever that looks like. Ultimately, there's the crying out to God. Then from the crying out to God, God moves, the deliverer comes out of then, and then as we got into Old Testament Judaism, once the deliverer came, the goal of the deliverer is to cleanse the temple so that God can come back in the temple and when where heaven and earth interface the temple, it's now cleansed. God is there and heaven is now on earth in the temple because God said, if you build this temple, I'm going to go there and I'm going to dwell there. So as a Jew, I'm thinking everything revolves around this temple and getting, getting ourselves first and then the temple clean enough that God will come and have habitation. But he's going to do it through a deliverer. Again, in Jewish thinking, Messiah, the way we talk about Messiah now, was not how they saw Messiah. Along the way from the Maccabees, uh, uh, Justice Maccabee, on, th on up through the time of Jesus, and then after Jesus there were others, there had been those that... that thought God was raising them up to liberate Israel from the oppressors, whoever they were. And so, you know, revolution came, you know, and so a leader would come. And, but every leader had been crushed. At some point, every Jewish leader, no matter how successful they seemed to be in the beginning of the revolution, ultimately they were crushed by the oppressor. And, you know, and so the Jews were still waiting so when they said, you know, at the end of the Seder meal, the last statement that's made is next year in Jerusalem. Yeah. The heart of every Jew, their hope of every Jew was next year. God will come and liberate us and next year we'll be in Jerusalem. Not just in Jerusalem to be in Jerusalem, but in a free Jerusalem, in a Jerusalem where the temple is restored, a Jerusalem that is now once again the place where God dwells with his people and we are the ones that are reigning over the earth. That was their hope, that was their expectation, and it still is today when a, when a Jewish community takes the Seder. It's still in the expectation of a deliverer is going to come and we're going to finally be set free, finally be reestablished. So Jesus starts coming in on the Passover and, you know, the, the triumphal entry. They're laying out the palm branches. They're, they're, they're celebrating. But what, what they saw, what they were anticipating was a liberator that would come and drive the Romans out. Jesus rides into town on a donkey, not exactly, you know, an M1 tank. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and instead of going against the Romans, instead of calling everybody together, now it's time to throw off the Romans, he goes to the temple and says to those at the temple, this building, it's about to be destroyed. So Matthew 24 gives us his whole prophetic declaration over the temple, which really made them mad. But 
So that's how they saw it. But what did Jesus see? What was Jesus trying to say? What was he anticipating as he came into Jerusalem? This was the culmination of the ages. This was Yahweh finally saying, I intend to become, to step into earth and to be, from this point on, my kingdom will be reigning supreme over the kingdoms of this world. This is the final confrontation. So Passover, Jerusalem, at that time, every time there's a feast, the Romans were on high alert because you have an influx of people. If ever there's a time where there's going to be revolt, it's going to be at a feast day. Jerusalem is full. There's all kinds of rumors going around. There's all kinds of talk going around. There's on any other Passover, it would be the same way. This Passover is different because the rumors of this guy named Jesus are already circula circulating through the town. And they're telling the story from their point of view. So when the stories are being told, they're talking about the fact that we think deliverers actually came. And now's the season. This is it. We just have to watch. If he's going to make his move, now. And, you know, we all know what it's like just in our own time when there's, you know, even if there's just going to be a protest, everybody's on high alert. This, if anything's going to go wrong, it's going to go wrong during this period of time. So the Romans were at high alert to make sure no rebellion took place. The Jews were on already plotting what they were going to do. Matthew 24, or Matthew 26, uh, verse 14. And one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. The axe was already laid to, this, to the trick. The prophecy was about to be fulfilled. It's just a matter of time. Judas was looking for what's the opportunity? When's the best time to betray him? You know, and this is kind of an aside, I guess. But if you take the if you take Judas and you take Peter, they both betrayed him. And they ended up with two different uh, outcomes. And in a sense, Judas' betrayal was based on his misunderstanding of who Jesus was. And Peter's betrayal was also, to a large part, based on how he misunderstood who Jesus was. Ultimately, Peter denied Jesus. Judas sold Jesus. That was different. And I would just submit that had, had that in that in that moment, the same grace that found Peter was available to find Judas. But often how we see God sets the stage for how we're going to react to God. And and grace can be standing right in front of us. And we don't see it, we don't allow it, 
we don't believe it's we deserve it there's a lot of different things we put in there but it's still there and it's still available god is willing that none should perish yeah. none that you know judas didn't sit outside of none he was part of none Ooh. Yeah, just say lie on that for a minute. I got lost in my notes. Um, so the convergence had started, and now Jesus steps into the middle of it. The, the Romans were on high alert. The Jews now had the, the stage set. It was just a matter of time before they arrested him. So Zechariah 11, uh, 12, and 13, this is the, the uh, prophecy that, that was fulfilled in, in Matthew 26. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was prized by them. So I took the, the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And we know that's exactly what Jesus did. He was paid 30. When he tried to give it back, they wouldn't take it. He goes to the temple and he throws it into the temple. And then later a field was bought because, and that's where he was. That's where he, where he died. In John 18, uh, Caiaphas says on 18:14, uh, it was Caiaphas who had advised, that to, advised the Jews that it would be expedient for one, that one man should die for the people. So, Again, it's this idea, it's, it's better for one person to die. So let's, this is a good thing. So the Jews felt justified in what they were doing. Why was it beneficial for one person to die? Because if this guy sets up the revolt, the Romans are going to come in, and we're all going to be in deep water. And for those people that were making that decision, I don't want to lose my power base. And I'm not going to lose my power base. It's better for this guy to die than for, for everything to go south in a hurry. So, you know, Caiaphas is high priest. I think this is a good plan. So Jesus' plan was that God is bringing the final exodus from all the Babylons that, of the world system that the Jews have been through. I... Um, I don't. Well, yeah, let me say it this way. So Jesus entering the city, comes in through the triumphal entry. Uh, again, this is all part of the Exodus story. This is what, you know, as they come out of Egypt, there's the triumphal entry into the promised land. There's the parting of the Red Sea. So there was this triumphal entry. And again, in, in first century Jews, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm seeing. These are the, the pictures that come to mind as I'm witnessing that. Uh, Jesus de declares the destruction of the temple. You know, and it's interesting because when Jesus goes in to the temple and prophesies its destruction... Again, to be a Jew that's hearing this, this man has just come into my God's temple and told me that he's going to see that this temple is destroyed. But this temple is where the God of Israel lives. 
So there's no way this man can be of God if he's going to talk about the temple the way he's talking about it. It's like, again, the, the conflict of what Jesus is saying that it's creating in the hearts of the hearers is tremendous. And I don't think I, I, I don't think I can even state it adequately to get us to that place emotionally, what it feels like for him to be saying what he's saying. Um, but the Jews saw Rome as the real enemy, but Rome wasn't the enemy. It was the power of evil that was the enemy. It was the evil that it's work in the world that does its work. It's the, the spirit of this world. That's the ultimate enemy. Yeah. And Jesus has been contending with that ultimate enemy his entire career. So, you know, uh, it's, the, it's the evil that works behind and empowers human arrogance. It's the evil that works behind and brings forth world systems that corrupt and don't do justice. It's the evil that works behind a person that would cause them to do heinous things to another human being. It's the evil that runs behind us. And... Jesus is confronting that evil. He wasn't there to confront the Romans. He wasn't even there to confront the Jews, even though he did say to them, the axe has been laid and judgment is now upon this because the time of visitation is now and you can't see and won't see the one who's standing in front of you. The time of judgment is here. But these powers that had dogged Jesus through his whole career, you know, the shrieking of the demoniacs that when he would go through a crowd, you know, the conspiring of the Herodians that were always trying to figure out how do we bring this guy down, the accusing of the Pharisees that, that dogged him at every time he's in the public that are there going, what do you mean by this? What do you mean by that? Well, you ought to do this. All the things that the Gospels lay out for us, Jesus was dogged by those voices continually. The plotting of the, of the chief priest. Yeah, it's good that one man should die and that this is how it's going to happen. And, and Judas providing the, the mechanism for that to happen. And wow, we can get this guy gone for 30 pieces of silver. This is a cheap deal. This, this is good. It could cost us a whole lot more. You know, the betrayer, Judas, that was, a, that was part of his own disciples, his own inner circle. And finally, just the whispering of voices within his own soul. I, I think we do a disservice if I make Jesus so divine that I move away from his humanity when he was both human and divine. And the divine did not minimize his humanity. I, you know, I think you know, the times when Jesus would... Uh, well, a case in point. So John the Baptist loses his head. And when that news came to Jesus, he, it says that he immediately withdrew to a, to a wilderness area. He went away and tried to settle what was going on. I mean, John was his cousin. They had grown up together. Their mothers had been pregnant together. They both had heard the stories. I don't, the scripture doesn't say this, you can, so you, you, can, you can do what you like with this. I happen to think that one of the things that struck Jesus in that moment, Jesus knew he was supposed to die, but not John. 
not John, not my cousin. I, I, know, I know what my responsibility is, but not him. And I, and I think, like any of us, when we're confronted with death, and it's a friend, it's family, it's someone we love, that strikes us deeply. And, I, and I, I do not see Jesus being immune from that. So he had to deal with his voices, just like we have to deal with our voices. Again, what the, you know, we jumping, well, not really jumping ahead, but you know, just the, the, for Jesus, the agony, again, as a human being, he has the last meal with the boys, and then he leaves for the garden. He knows that he's been betrayed. Judas, what you're going to do, do it quickly. He knew that, that, the, he, that Jesus had set the right stage for Judas to do what he had purposed in his heart to do. But now he's in the garden. And just the agony of being there, it's like, I, I, um, maybe nobody has this type of anxiety except for me. But one of the things I really don't like is when I have a dentist appointment and it's not a checkup. And I'm all in anticipation of getting this root canal. And they tell me that I need to be at the office at 10 o'clock. And I get there at 10. And now it's 5 after, 10 after, quarter after, 20 after, 10.30. And my anxiety level is going choop, choop. And then there's this part of me that says, I'm going to run. I'm out of here. I, I don't think this was a good idea to begin with. I'm just running. Yeah, it's a sign. It's a sign. You know, it's a sign. I, I, you know, and that's just to get a root canal. Jesus is in the garden and time is passing. Enough time passes for him to go, Father, is there, is there another way? Is there, you know, is there another way? I mean, I, I know for me, as time is passing and I'm waiting for the root canal, my faith level for divine healing and intervention is going up. I mean, I'm just going to walk in and they're going to go, why are you even here? There's nothing wrong with your tooth. Glory to God. Can't wait to share that testimony. I have not had that testimony yet. But there's this place where anxiety is building. You know, Jesus is now at this point is sweating tears of blood because of the anxiety. He's turning to the guys going, couldn't you even pray with me for an hour? So there, it's the humanity of Jesus. So when we're in those places and he's there with us, he knows exactly what we're going through. It's not, he's not removed from my agony. He's not removed from my sense of time. All of a sudden, 
you know, I, I can go through the day and 30 minutes just go by. I don't even think about 30 minutes. I'm sitting in a dental office and 30 minutes feels like an eternity, slipping by two seconds at a time. And so it's a whole, you feel a whole different. It's like, you know, so time becomes, starts to be my enemies. Time starts to become my accusers. Time starts to be that place where you, where you, should I, shouldn't I? Is it, was this really the right decision? I don't know if it was the right decision. Jesus was there. So he's arrested. And then the chief priest, they have, a, they have a trial, but it's not even a trial. As I talked about before, the whole purpose of the Sanhedrin was you start from a place of innocence and they have to work hard to prove that you're guilty of something. The, the, the members of the Sanhedrin are actually there to be your advocates towards innocence, not your accusers. But in this case, they were all accusers. So Jesus ends up being, um, being uh, charged by them. The, the frame that they put him in was he had seditious talk against the temple and blasphemy. Now, that particular charge works okay for the Jewish court. The Roman court, it doesn't work at all. I mean, Rome doesn't care if somebody stands outside the temple and cusses it seven days a week. They don't care. So, you know, so on the Jewish side, yeah, uh, sedition and blasphemy. It's interesting, and we read this before, but Jesus kind of gets passed back and forth, and the Jews know the only way to get the Romans involved in this is we have to come up with a totally trumped-up charge because we can't prove anything on this man. He is innocent. So what's the charge? Ultimately, what charge the Jews present to the Romans is that he has, this man has been plotting sedition against the Roman government. Which, interesting enough, Pilate even goes, I ain't buying it. I don't think there's enough here for me to do anything with. And he sends him back, you know, we, and it, gets sent, it goes back and forth. But ultimately, Jesus is charged as leading a rebellion and being a, a rebel against the Roman government. Again, he's innocent, and who, you know, when Pilate brings him out and says, I, I can let a man go, how about if I just let this guy go, Jesus? And everybody starts screaming, no, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Bra Barabbas was a rebel. Bar Barabbas had been arrested and was going to be probably crucified himself for being the very thing that Jesus was charged with and yet innocent. So at the cross, at the cross, we're, we're at this place now. And um, I'm going to kick this over because... We're at this place where there's now the, the, the full convergence has come. Jesus has been found guilty. He's going to the cross. And so there, there's, 
there's, again, there's a mindset that says, there's, a, there's thoughts that, that others might hold that at this point, the, the full wrath of God is being poured out on Jesus. And so all that starts to happen now is coming from God the Father as being put on Jesus. And so this is all about God's wrath and Jesus taking what we should have rightfully had. And, um, and, and so God's just pouring all this out. One, stop being a polytheist. We're not talking about three gods here. We're not even talking about two gods. We're talking about one God. He's not divided into something else. God in the flesh is still God on the throne. It's not two different gods. What God was giving himself over to was not him mad at himself. What God was confronting was sin and death that has held the world captive from the fall in the garden to the present and has reached its culmination at this moment on this hill, on this cross, with this man, where God said, I'm coming in the flesh and I'm going to confront and I'm going to destroy what has been holding you captive and destroying your life for generations. I've come to deal with sin and death. And the way I'm going to deal with it is by loving. And by loving, I'm going to submit myself to the evil that's behind mankind. And I'm going to give my life. I'm going to be beaten beyond recognition. My blood's going to be shed. But I'm doing it because I love you. And I will not. Deal with you the way you're going to deal with me. And for all of eternity, the way you dealt with me will be trumped by how I'm going to deal with you. And so I'm going to confront, I'm going to be, I'm giving myself in love to be betrayed, to go through all that we've just brought, you know, I've just talked about and more. I'm giving myself to all that. So ultimately, they're going to put me on this cross and they're going to, in, in, you know, inflict the pain that they're going to inflict. But at the end, again, this is not two different gods, one God punishing another God to somehow help measly human beings get out of it. This is the creator of the universe saying, this is my creation. I am the Lord. I will own what I've created and it will reflect me and my heart, not what evil says it should look like. This is not what I created, and I am going to fix what needs to be fixed. And so they nail God to the cross. Not two separate gods, not another God going, I don't know where I'm going to go, but I can't look at you. I think I'll go over here. Again, let Jesus be a human. Let God be... God, and then let Jesus be divine. But we're still talking about one God doing a single act that changes everything. And so they, they you know, they, they put him on the cross. And, you know, so we go through the agony of the cross. And then finally, finally at the end, you know, just... <laughs> Um, we're at this where 
in the cross is all the crying that has gone on over the seas, over the millennia for justice, all the crying that's come forth longing for spirituality, all those that were eager for relationship, all those that were yearning for beauty, all came together in one final scene where evil gave everything that evil had. And finally, Jesus in the last breath says it's finished. It's finished. I was supposed to be able to go there quickly. If you take the time and kind of go through Hebrews 8, 9, 10, 11, that section of Hebrews, I mean, that's such a powerful thing. You know, we, we talked about it today. We sang about it today, about the blood of Jesus and coming, driving over here today and just kind of thinking about this sermon, it, uh, an old song that we used to sing in the Methodist church, you know, what can take away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. Um, you know, and, and we talk about being, you know, the other hymn, I'm washed in the blood. You know, there's power in the blood. There's all these hymns about the blood. And people will say, you know, you Christians, you, you guys just, I mean, you're, you're just really violent people. I mean, everything is about this, you know, there has to be this death, there has to be this blood. You're all talking about being covered in the blood all the time. And, you know, I, I don't know about you. I don't want to be covered in blood, blah, blah, blah. You know, they do all that stuff. And most of the time we're like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe you're right. I, I don't even know how to answer the question. And, I'm, you know, like, you know, and then they'll go, well, what does it mean to be covered in the blood? Well, what does it mean to be covered in the blood? This is what I submit. When Cain killed Abel, God heard the blood of Cain, or the, the blood of Abel, crying out from the ground. And there's a couple other verses that, that where the ground cries out because of the murdered one. When you read through the book of Acts, what the apostle or what the the uh, Luke as he's writing the the story, what the new the early church, what they were starting to recognize was, and what they said was, you murdered Jesus. Nobody was running around saying, "Well, God just killed Jesus." They said, "You murdered him, you." Even to the point where at the end of Peter's sermon. You know, the people that are hearing go, oh, my goodness. Well, if we murdered him, you know, what do we have to do? I mean, what's the way through this? You know, and Peter says, oh, well, that's easy. Repent for the days of refreshing have come. What? You mean... I murdered God. I stood in the courtyard before Pilate, and it was my voice that was added to all the voices that just yelled, crucify him, crucify him. And now you're telling me that all I have to do is say, I'm sorry? Well, yeah, yeah. Because don't worry, Jesus already covered it. He already said, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. 
So all I have to do is step into what he's already declared. When we talk about the blood of Jesus, this is what I, I want to submit to us. You guys can chew on this as you want. Uh, I said I reading the center section of Hebrews is a good place to begin, but there's other verses that do it too. What about the blood? What about the blood? When we take communion, what about the blood? What does it mean that, that this blood speaks of better promises? The blood is speaking. It is still speaking. It's never stopped speaking. It speaks on my behalf. It speaks on your behalf continually from the very ground that it fell on. I'm washed in the blood because the blood speaks. I'm washed in the blood because when the accuser comes against me and says, look at him, look what he's doing, the blood speaks a better promise. That's not who he is. He doesn't belong to you anymore. You can't hold him by accusation. You can't hold him by what you held him by before. He doesn't even belong to you anymore. The king has come. You know, and it, that's hard for us to get this whole idea of Lord and King. We, we've never lived in countries and societies that, that that's how they functioned. So it's, it's difficult for us. But to be at this place where the Lord, the creator of the universe, my father, your father, has said, you were broken and I fixed you. You were trapped and I found a way to give you freedom. You know, I, I, another thing I was thinking about is in, in Isaiah, where in the prophecy of the suffering servant, it talks about, you know, the scripture says it pleased God to bruise him. It, you know, and so we take that going, see, God was really happy when all this was happening. Again, you can ponder this one how you want. If I have a, a cancerous tumor inside of me, we could say, in, and, well, let me, and so to get that tumor out, they're going to lay me open, peel me open. It's going to be a very difficult, invasive surgery, and all, the, and, and all that. You could say that it pleased the surgeon to do that to me. Why? Because in the end, the cancer was removed and I was made whole. Was there a time of affliction from the surgeon's hand to my body? Absolutely. Thankfully, that's why they knock you out. I can't even imagine you'd let, you'd go back to the revolution or even the Civil War. It's like, oh, dear Jesus. Yeah, yeah, bite on this stick. Here, have some whiskey, and that's going to work. Well, we'll be done in a while. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but so we could say it pleased the surgeon to do what the surgeon does. Why? Because at the end, I'm better. I'm whole again. Yes, it pleased the father in this, but it, in pleasing the father, again, don't be a polytheist in your thinking. It pleased God to give himself to what was about to happen, to be murdered at the hands of man. It pleased God to submit himself to man for this violent act because in the joy that God saw, 
he was willing to do that because what happened? At the end, we've been made whole. We've been restored to our, who our creator is. We, our father is now back in, in center position. And he's never going away. So the blood still speaks, the blood that Jesus spilt. We've, I know we've talked about this on other times, but just the, the amount of blood that Jesus shed in the woundings that he took, that took place even before the cross, there wasn't enough blood left in him to still be living. And, um, and then you, you add the cross into it and the agony there, and the time there, all that went into that. The miracle was that he was able to do it. That's the miracle. Because, you know, there isn't a mortal man that's capable of that. You know, I don't, I don't care what Rambo says. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Well, the problem is I don't know any of the new superheroes. Um, so, uh, <laughs> um, so you know, there was another. Uh, maybe I'll try to land the plane for today because we're going to come back the next time. We're going to get into the resurrection and what that actually means in this confrontation that's taking place. But in for in uh, time right around the. Um, from the, after the resurrection as the early church was getting going, one of the stories that circulated was that with all that Jesus went through, he really didn't die. He, when the Romans took him down and put him in the tomb, he was still alive. And so his followers got him out of the tomb and, and so on. The problem with that is, again, as a first century Jew, when I'm looking for Messiah, when I'm looking for the conquering liberator, I'm not looking for somebody that almost dies and that has to spend, a, you know, now has to go into rehab for the, next, for the next eight months to get patched back up, to kind of get their strength back up. No, that's not the Exodus story. That's not what the Exodus story looks like. Nobody would have called Jesus king of the Jews if that had been what had really happened. But he was king of the Jews. Yeah. He was king of the Jews. So, okay, I'm going to land the plane today. That's it. Um, unless you want me to read Hebrews 8, 9, 10, maybe into 11. <laughs> but you can do that for next time. So Harold will be here next week, and then I'll be back after that. And we'll, we'll continue on this. But um, I just... I'm hoping that I'm getting this across in a way that, that, well, I would hope that you would agree with me, but even if you don't, I hope I'm at least being clear, that this confrontation at Golgotha was a confrontation between God and evil, not between God and God. And evil lost. God brought evil into the battle, and evil thought, this is an easy one to win. We've taken others out. We can take this one out. This is no big deal. 
you know, and it's kind of like, um, you know, one of the old uh, war strategies, especially if you're kind of outnumbered, is you send some soldiers in for confrontation, but just when it looks like it's getting hot, they take off and they run back, but then you've got your main army on both sides and you lure the enemy into the trap and then you close the door and now you now the slaughter begins. Well, that's exactly what Yahweh did. Evil thought, you kill this man, Caiaphas already said it, it's good for all of us if this man dies. Yeah, let's just kill him. But the trap had already been sprung and evil ran into it and the door was shut and the final cry that the enemy heard was, it's finished. We ain't fighting this battle again. It's finished. Amen.